So I'm calling today Revelation 20, verses 7 to 15, part 2, what happened when Jesus died on the cross. So we're going to quickly revise what we did last week, and then we're going to dig in fairly deep and look at some false teaching relating to this topic. And we're doing that as we take an in-depth look at what happened as Jesus suffered and died on the cross in our place. So. It's interesting, I think, to study and understand what exactly happened while Jesus was suffering and dying on the cross and why it matters because people have some really weird ideas about you know, where he went and what he did and the suffering he went through. So I just want to make it clear what the scriptures say about that. And it's relevant to the Great White Throne Judgment and also... My main goal, my prayer for you today, is that you'll have a greater understanding of the incredible lengths that God went to so that sinners don't have to stand before the great white throne judgment, which we know is the second resurrection, and it's the judgment of condemnation. And also pray that you have a greater understanding of just how awful the lake of fire is, the second death, as the Bible calls it, because as we look at what Jesus suffered, we're going to also understand what the unbelievers will suffer. Okay, So not only do we get a greater appreciation of what Jesus suffered when he died in our place and therefore a greater understanding of his love, but we also get a greater understanding of just how bad it will be in hell, in the lake of fire. So I'll just pray quickly. Father, pray you give us understanding today of your word. Speak to us by your spirit. And Lord, help us not just to be learning with our heads, but also our hearts will be engaged as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you have a look at those charts in your notes there, there's two charts. There's one which says before Jesus' death and resurrection, is what happened to people when they died in the Old Testament. And it's pretty simple. Everybody, when they died, their body went into the ground and goes back to the dust. Genesis 3.19, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, as they say. And also, their soul and spirit, everybody went to Hades or Sheol. Remember that place in the center of the earth? But within that place, within that one place, Sheol or Hades, there's two compartments. It's split into two compartments. And we read last week in Luke 16 that there's a great impassable gulf, a barrier that separates one part from the other. One part is called paradise or Abraham's bosom, and that's where the believing or righteous dead are enjoying comfort or were enjoying comfort until Jesus died to pay the penalty for their sin. And the rest who died unbelieving, not putting their faith in the Messiah and the forgiveness he would bring, are in a place we call torments, because they're going to be in torment until the great white throne judgment, which is at the end of the millennial reign. Now, also on the diagram, you have another circle there, and inside it's got Tartarus, the abyss, and the bottomless pit, and the demons are chained and bound, and it's got a list of verses. And basically, that's the place where the demons are chained. There's some demons already chained up, but we know that during the millennium, Satan and his hordes will be bound there as well, and then released from there at the end of the thousand years. So, moving on to the next chart, which is after Jesus' death and resurrection. This represents what happens to people in the New Testament. Now, Jesus has already died and risen again. He's paid the price for our sins. What you'll see is some additions here. We have the cross, for example, and we have Jesus descending into Hades, going to paradise or Abraham's bosom, and then. When he ascends, he also takes everybody who was in paradise or Abraham's bosom up to where? 
Up to heaven, yeah. Because now their sin debt is paid. They are legally justified. They are legally declared innocent before God. Whereas before that, their sin was there. It was just covered. The promise was that it would be paid, but it hadn't been paid yet. But today in the New Testament, after the cross, post-cross, we do not go into Hades. A believer will not go into Hades. Their soul and spirit, their soul and spirit go straight to the presence of God in heaven. But the unbelievers, they still go to that place in Hades called torments. And they will wait there with all the other unbelieving dead until the second resurrection. And they will stand before the great white throne judgment and they will be condemned and sent to hell, which is the lake of fire. So that's basically the two charts explained there. So what we get through this is we can understand a lot, and I'm going to bring in some other scriptures. And the first false doctrine I'm going to counter or try and rebut is this false doctrine, this belief that Jesus continued to suffer in Hades. This is a fairly common one that you hear in a lot of churches. And it's important that we understand that Jesus made no atonement in Hades while he was in Hades. The price was already literally paid in full on the cross. Remember in John 19.30, Jesus said, It is finished. The price was paid in full when Jesus suffered in his physical body. And that's the key here. So that's what I'm going to focus on. Jesus suffered in his physical body, not his spirit and soul down in Hades, but in his physical body on the cross. And Colossians 1.19-22 makes this really clear. So it says, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. So God the Father was in Christ, reconciling everything to himself. It's interesting, isn't it? Even on the cross, God the Father was in Christ, reconciling things, everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Not after the cross, but on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Is that pretty cool? We stand before him holy and blameless without a single fault. What I want to focus on here is that it was through the death of Christ in his, what? Physical body, okay? It was through the death of Christ in his physical body. So, the two things we're going to get from this verse in Colossians 1, 19 and 22 is in verse 20 it says, by means of Christ's blood on the cross, not after the cross and through the death of Christ in his physical body. Okay? So, this is important because in Hades, Jesus would not have had a physical body. His old natural human body was where? In the tomb, right? And he didn't get his resurrection body until he rose again. So, basically, what I'm saying here, the Bible makes it very clear to us that our sin debt was paid both while Jesus was still on the cross and in his physical body. That's what these verses in Colossians are telling us. So what this means is that Jesus went to Hades as a victor, not a victim. Yeah? So Jesus' work and preaching offered salvation for the believing dead who in faith waited in Hades. We went through that last week in Hebrews 11, 39-40. And his work sealed the condemnation of the wicked and unbelieving. So the fact that Jesus entered Hades as a victor refutes the false teaching that Jesus went to Hades or torments 
and continued to suffer there on our behalf until his resurrection, which is what some people teach. So, question. Make sure you understand this. What two main reasons or evidences does Colossians 1, 19-22 give us that convince us that Jesus did not continue to suffer for our sins in Hades after he suffered and died on the cross? Yep, the payment was made on the cross. And it was through the death of Christ in his what? His physical body. Okay. Now, another scripture that contradicts this false teaching that says Jesus suffered for our sins while in the middle of the earth, in Hades, in torments, is what Jesus said to the thief on the cross. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. So I'm going to read those verses in Luke 23, 39-43. And it says, One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God, even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, Today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus is telling the repentant thief on the cross, remember there's two thieves, one repented, one didn't, that today, or that very day, you will be with me in paradise. So if it was true that Jesus did actually suffer in Hades, in the torments section of Hades, just like you know where the rich man was from Luke 16, he would have been separated from this man who had just been saved on the cross. Jesus didn't say to the thief, Assuredly, today you will be in paradise watching me continue to suffer for your sins in torment. That didn't happen. Instead, Jesus says, No, you'll be with me. I'll be in the paradise section of Hades with you. Jesus was not suffering down there. And this time of Jesus being in the middle of the earth was actually him rejoicing in the spoils, collecting his spoils, the rewards of his victory among the Old Testament saints who were in paradise, also called Abraham's bosom. And you see that in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22. Jesus is resurrected and he enjoys the spoils of his victory. Now, another false doctrine that we're going to cover as we look at this is the idea of purgatory. So the thief on the cross can be used to refute purgatory. So purgatory, what is purgatory? The belief that Jesus' death on the cross was not sufficient to pay the penalty for our sins and that a believer must somehow continue to atone or pay for their own sins by suffering their own suffering in purgatory for an unknown period of time, before being allowed into heaven. So, that's purgatory. Now, there's several details about the salvation of the thief on the cross that contradicts this false teaching. So, let's have a look. So, firstly, this thief was not a good person. He was a convicted criminal. Also, just a short time before his confession of faith, he was, what was he doing? What were the thieves doing? Blaspheming God, yeah. So the thief on the cross, he was a convicted criminal and just a short time before his confession of faith, he was blaspheming, mocking and ridiculing Jesus. And you read that in Matthew 27.44. So maybe the three hours of darkness from 12pm to 3pm changed his mind. I mean, you imagine being the thief on the cross and suddenly the sky goes dark. And people are saying that Jesus is the Messiah or, or claiming he's Messiah and, and then suddenly the sky goes dark and all these things are happening and you're going, oh, maybe, maybe he is the Messiah. And so maybe that was one of the things. Remember, how long was Jesus on the cross for? Six hours. So from 9 o'clock in the morning until 3 p.m. The first three hours was normal, normal light, normal day. But from 12 p.m. midday to 3 p.m., the last three hours on the cross, the sky was dark. Everything went dark. Now, 
The other thing that we need to notice is that the thief on the cross had no opportunity to do any good works while he was nailed to a cross, except what? Believe and repent. Yeah. In spite of this man's sinful lifestyle, in spite of this man's inability to do any good works, Jesus said, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. So if there was anyone who deserved to go to purgatory, it would have been the thief on the cross. After all, he could do and had done nothing to earn God's favor or his salvation. So this is a comfort for us because this scripture demonstrates that Jesus' death on the cross was absolutely and completely sufficient to pay our sin debt in full. And 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says that he did pay our sin debt, not only ours, but also the sin debt of the whole world. It says, He himself is a sacrifice that atones for our sins. That means propitiation. And not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. The fact is that forgiveness is available to all who come to Jesus believing that he is the payment for their sins and who also repent. Now what does repent mean? Turn from your sins and turn to God. Good. So, two things. People say you just got to believe. No, you got to believe and repent. So Mark one fifteen, The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and Believe the good news. Now, the next false doctrine I want to tackle here as we look at what Jesus did on the cross is this false doctrine of transubstantiation. So, basically, this idea is this doctrine teaches that Jesus' sacrifice continues whenever a priest conducts a Mass because they believe that the bread and wine are literally converted to the body and blood of Jesus, although they say that you won't see the change. Now, I've got a quote from gotquestions.org, so www.gotquestions.org. Really good site. If you've got questions, it's a great place to go. So I've just got a, a quick quote from their What is Transubstantiation article, and it says, The most serious reason transubstantiation should be rejected is that it is viewed by the Roman Catholic Church as a re-sacrifice, okay? a re-sacrifice of Jesus for our sins, or as a re-offering or representation of his sacrifice. This is directly in contradiction to what Scripture says, that Jesus died once for all and does not need to be sacrificed again. Now this is you know, when you see the crucifix in the Catholic Church, it's Jesus still hanging on the cross. And that's why, because they still believe he's being sacrificed every time they have Mass. But I'm going to show you three scriptures which show conclusively that it's a done deal. Jesus' payment for our sins is over and done. It's finished. It's complete. It's paid in full. So the first one is Hebrews 7.27. It says, Unlike those other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first, and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all, when he offered himself as a sacrifice for the people's sins. So, how often did Jesus do it? Once. Who did he do it for? All. Okay, once for all. He did it once, and he did it for everybody. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. Very clear. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life by the Spirit. And Hebrews 10 verse 10 For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. Once for all time. Can you notice this theme throughout the scriptures? The sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. When? Once for all time in his body on the cross. It's finished. It's done. So, I want to come back to purgatory now. 
this teaching, this false teaching, that when a saint or believer dies, they go to purgatory, an imaginary intermediate place of the dead, where a person, in effect, tops up the payments for their sins or continues to atone for their sins. So the fact is, because Jesus' work on the cross is finished, it means our sin debt is literally paid in full. And therefore, there is no waiting for believers who die. The scripture is clear. Believers, when they die, go directly to heaven. Yeah. Believers, when they die, go directly to heaven. And we read the scriptures, 2 Corinthians 5, 6-8, and Philippians 1, 22-23 last week. These scriptures tell us that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So, as those charts were explaining to us visually, since the time that Jesus died and rose again, the moment a believer's spirit and soul leave their body, when they have their physical death, they are in the direct presence of God. Now, I'm going to move on to more evidence that the payment for sins was completed while Jesus was still alive on the cross. And this starts to take us into an investigation of just how much he suffered and what it cost him and how awful it was for Jesus to be hanging on that cross. So I'm going to focus in on the last three statements that Jesus spoke while hanging on the cross. And these give us a lot of insight into what was going on behind the scenes in the spiritual world. So the first one we're going to look at, well, the third last one in reality, but the first one we're going to look at today is Matthew 27, 45 to 46. Here, Jesus describes being separated from the Father and the Holy Spirit. He was separated. There was a break in a relationship. And this was a consequence of what? Our sin, yeah, sin separates us from God, right? So Jesus is experiencing separation from God on our behalf. So Matthew 27, 45 to 46. Now from the sixth hour, midday, until the ninth hour, 3 p.m., there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that's what he said. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, and clearly indicating that he's separated from the Father. He's out of relationship with the Father. For the first time, okay, for the first time he's out of relationship with the Father. Imagine the pain of that. Then, just before Jesus died, Jesus tells us that the fine has been paid, our sin debt paid in full. And John 19.30 says, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave his spirit. So, if the fine is paid in full, then there should be no more separation from the Father and the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus for at least three hours, as represented by the three hours of darkness. For three hours, the anger and wrath that I deserve, the penalty for my sin, was poured out onto Jesus. Now, in the scriptures, in Isaiah and Matthew, Isaiah 51 and Matthew 26, there's this picture of a cup, the cup of God's wrath, the cup of God's judgment. And God gives the cup to people to drink, and when they drink it, they will suffer God's judgment. So, God has, figuratively speaking, poured his wrath into a cup, and then he hands the cup to Jesus, and Jesus drinks the entire so all the wrath, all the anger, all the payment for sins, the penalty for sins, is put into one cup. It's a pitcher. And Jesus drinks the whole lot, right down to the dregs. He drains it. He drinks every last drop of judgment. He experiences every bit of the wrath of God. Remember Jesus in the garden? He said, Father, if it is possible, take this cup from me. It's a cup of God's judgment. So, there's nothing left in the cup to drink. There's no more sin to atone for. There's no more wrath or judgment 
Therefore, there is no more separation. How do we know that there's no more separation? What did Jesus say? The very last thing Jesus said as he breathed his last breath, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so in Luke 23, 46, and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, so I'm assuming that was when he said, it is finished or paid in full. Then after that he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So I believe that those two statements were very close together. It's paid in full. The fine is paid. Tetelestai. And then, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So he basically said it, and he's gone. He committed his spirit into the hands of God the Father. So what does this tell us? We know for certain that Jesus was back in fellowship with the Father as soon as he died. He committed his spirit into the Father's hands. Now think about this, application for us. Where are we as believers? We are in the hands of the Father, right? So we are in fellowship with God. We're in the hands of the Father. We're in the protection, in the loving care of the Father. So to be in the hands of the Father represents fellowship and security. And the only reason that we are able to be in fellowship with God is because there is no more sin separating us from God. It is all paid for. Forgiveness is there for the asking. And again, I just want to repeat this. It's really important. Why could Jesus commit his spirit to the Father? It's because all the sin of mankind was paid for and therefore there was no more sin left to keep Jesus separated from the Father. And that's why Jesus could announce, it is finished, meaning paid in full. And that's why he said it before. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, another question we can ask is, why did Jesus only commit his spirit to the Father and not his body? Well, what happened to his body? It was put into a tomb, wasn't it? His spirit and his soul left his body. Yeah? He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His body was left on the cross until it was taken down by Joseph and Nicodemus and put into that rich man's tomb. But his spirit and his soul, where did they go? Down to Sheol, yeah, to Hades. Which compartment? Abraham's bosom or paradise, yeah. When was Jesus human spirit and soul reunited to his body at his resurrection yeah and you know the same is true for us okay when we die our spirit and soul leave our body and then at the time of our resurrection which is at the time of the rapture we join back up with our body a new body just like Jesus did I'm going to read those verses from 1 Corinthians 15, 50-53, just to remind us of this awesome fact. What I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. So both the believing dead and the living believers will receive their resurrection body at that time. Verse 52, It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. Their bodies will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. And mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. So, my goal here is to make it clear that Jesus could not and did not suffer in Hades in torments after his death on the cross. Why? The logic is mankind's sin debt was paid in full through Jesus' physical suffering in his body on the cross. And Jesus' words where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, 
indicate that the separation between the Father that Jesus experienced between the Father and the Holy Spirit was over. In other words, because the payment was complete, there's no more sin to keep Jesus separated from the Father and the Holy Spirit. There's no more wrath for him to endure, no more suffering to experience. Now, what did it mean for Jesus to be separated from God? This is what I want to focus on now. Matthew 27, 45, 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does it mean? How did this affect Jesus? Well, we know that at this time, Jesus in his human form was paying for the sins of the world because he was enduring the unspeakable agony of eternal separation from the love of God, as well as experiencing the wrath of God being poured out on him. Because Jesus did, I don't have to. Does that make sense? Because Jesus did, I don't have to. Jesus experienced the eternal separation from God that people will experience when they go to the great white throne judgment, the second death. Okay, Jesus was experiencing that judgment, that wrath, that eternal separation from God when he was on the cross. And again, because Jesus did, I don't have to. Not that I won't, but I don't have to. I have a choice. We all have a choice now to accept God's payment for my sins and so I don't have to suffer this eternal wrath and punishment. Now, when Jesus quoted or cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting a psalm. Do you remember which psalm he was quoting and alluding to? He was singing, or not singing, but he was crying out the first line of a psalm. Which psalm was that? Psalm 22. Now, Psalm 22 is amazing, and in a little while we're going to read it. It describes the crucifixion of the Messiah in detail. David, over a thousand years before the event, accurately predicted not only what Jesus would say from the cross, some of what he would say, but also the way or method of his death, even before that method was invented, crucifixion. It's important we understand that the agony of being separated from the Father combined with experiencing the righteous anger and wrath being poured out on him, would be far, far greater than the physical pain. So the agony of being separated from this love relationship and the wrath being poured out on him is far greater than the physical pain. So you're going to look past the physical and look to the spiritual, what's going on behind the scenes. Now, question. A bit of revision here for what we've done today. What did Jesus say in John 19.30 that proves he had finished paying for the sins of the world by his suffering and death on the cross? It is finished. What does it mean? Paid in full. It's the word tetelestai in the Greek. Now what does it mean? It means paid in full to complete, to finish, to accomplish, to fulfill, to pay. Now if you were living at the time in that Greek culture back in that Roman Empire, if you had a debt, that debt, the amount you owed, would be written down on a piece of parchment. Let's just call it a piece of paper today. And as you paid bits off, they'd write down how much you paid and then you know, calculate how much it was owing. And when you made the final payment, they would put a line across it and write paid in full, totalistai. And there's no more debt to pay. That debt is cleared. It's finished. So what we have here is, like it says in Colossians, the handwriting of ordinances that were against us has been abolished. It's been paid in full. It's been crossed out. There is no more sin. It's gone. It's been paid for. Now, what did Jesus say in Luke 23, 46? That proves he has finished paying for the sins of the world by his suffering and death on the cross. Yep, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So we know that Jesus had finished paying for the sins of the world because he's no longer separated from the Father. Just before Jesus took his final breath, he cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and breathed his last. 
They were his last words. So what this means is at the point when Jesus died, Jesus' human spirit was reunited with the Father. Okay? Jesus' human spirit was reunited with the Father. Now, remember God cannot die, so Jesus as God did not die. But Jesus as a man died in our place. It was his human soul and spirit that experienced separation from God and his human body that died. Now, because the sin debt of all mankind is now paid in full, Jesus basically shut down the part of Hades known as Abraham's bosom or paradise. If you could, it would be interesting if you could do this, go for a, a tour into the middle of the earth and visit this place called paradise or Abraham's bosom, you would find that it was what? Yep, you'd be the only one there, okay? Because all the other people, they've gone to heaven. And when people die now, they go straight to heaven. But the portion of Hades reserved for torment, for those who don't believe, is occupied, or will be occupied until the final judgment, the second resurrection, the great white throne judgment. And those people will be sent to the lake of fire. And that's what we normally think of as hell. And just to quickly go over what hell is, it's Gehenna. Remember Jesus used the word Gehenna, hell. The word Henna, hell, yeah? The lake of fire. This is the real hell, the eternal hell. And it has many names. The lake of fire, everlasting fire, everlasting punishment, out of darkness. Notice the repetition of the words everlasting, everlasting fire, everlasting punishment. Now, I want to point out something this week. Matthew twenty-five forty-one. Who was the lake of fire prepared for? The devil and his angels. Okay. Matthew twenty-five forty-one says, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, this is referring to the sheep and goat judgment, the unbelievers on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire. Again, everlasting fire. Prepared for the devil and his angels. So, God's desire is that no one will perish. Through Jesus' death on the cross, God made it possible for every person to be saved, but we have free choice. God is never going to force someone to live with him. You have to choose to receive the gift of forgiveness and then live forever with him. Now, to finish, I'm just going to go through Psalm 22. And this is a story of Jesus' crucifixion written a thousand years before it happened. And you know, between Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, we have more information on what happened than we do in the Gospels. It's amazing. So, Psalm 22, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And the, from the words of my groaning, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and, and not silent. So, it says, Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this describes the agony of the separation that Jesus experienced. And those words, but you do not hear, would be some of the hardest words, the most difficult reality for Jesus to experience. He's never, ever been separated from the Father. The good thing for us is because of what Jesus has done is that God promises to always hear our prayers. And there's lots of references for that, like Psalm 4 verse 3, Psalm 5 verse 3, and Psalm 10 verse 17. There's lots. God promises to always hear our prayers. But here, the Father is not listening to Jesus. There's a separation. It continues in verse 3, But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. So in contrast to what Jesus just said, in his mercy God had delivered Israel many times, but there would be no mercy for Jesus. Why? 
because Jesus is the scapegoat. He is the one who's enduring the wrath of God against all the combined sin of all mankind. And the psalm goes on to say, describing Jesus and how Jesus felt and what Jesus experienced. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. So a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. So this is exactly what happened. If you read the Gospels, this is exactly what happened when Jesus was on the cross. So a thousand years before, it was described exactly what people would be saying about him. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. This is what the high priest was saying. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And then more thoughts about what Jesus was thinking Okay, while he was on the cross. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. So part of the agony is Jesus had such a close relationship with God the Father that now God isn't hearing him anymore. There's a separation. And then Jesus continues to pray. This is like a prayer that Jesus would be praying from the cross, you know, in his heart. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. So this describes a vicious attack on Jesus from both his human and spiritual enemies. Okay, Satan is doing his best. This is fulfilling what God said in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent will bruise his heel. But at the end of it, when the fine is paid, the Messiah, will, the seed, will crush his head. And then we come into a physical description of the crucifixion in verses 14 to 17 of Psalm 22, again, a thousand years prior to the event. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones, they look and stare at me. So, very accurate description of death by crucifixion. Then, verse 18, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This was fulfilled when the soldiers gambled for Jesus' clothing. I didn't want to rip his garment made of one piece, and so they, they gambled for it. Jesus continues, basically, this is what he'd be saying or thinking praying in his head, But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. And I love this, what it says. You have answered me. So, Jesus Christ, save me. Okay, Remember, the Father has not been listening, not been hearing. There's been this separation. And Jesus prays. Do not be far from me. Deliver me. And it says, you have answered me. So this is a turning point in the psalm. You have answered me. And this describes a beautiful reunion of Jesus' spirit with the Father, which happened when he died. And then the resurrection. And now it turns to praise. Verse 22. I will declare your name to my brethren. And this is not talking about David. This is... Jesus. If you have a look at the pronouns there, they're all capitalized. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he 
has not despised nor afflicted the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. So when Jesus cried to the Father, the Father heard. And it says, I will declare your name to my brethren. So even though he died, the only way Jesus could declare his name to his brethren, that's us, the believers, is that he re-raised from the dead. So, verse 22 describes what Jesus made possible when he paid the penalty for our sins. He rose from the dead. I will declare your name to my brethren. That's what he achieved, yeah? When Jesus died on the cross. We become his brethren when we believe. He made it possible. Jesus' goal, Jesus' desire is to declare the Father's name to us. His brethren. He calls us his brothers. And then it continues in verse 25 to the end. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And the families of the nations shall worship before you. Remember Jesus. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. So Jesus has won the battle, and now he's looking forward to the time he comes back, and he receives, or he takes possession of what he's defeated, what he's earned in his victory on the cross over Satan and the demons, over sin and death. And it says, All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship, and those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. So they're going to come and declare his righteousness to the people who will be born, that he has done this. Always going back to what Jesus has done. Always remembering what Jesus has done. He's describing the future glory and honor ascribed to Jesus because of what he suffered. And Isaiah 53 parallels this as well. So Psalm 22 is just an amazing psalm. Now we're going to go and have communion. I'm going to follow on with this theme of what Jesus has done for us. So this is why I've spent the time today. I just felt really led to Focus in on what Jesus has done for us. And now we come to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, and beg of you, in view of all the mercies of God, to make a decisive dedication, a decisive dedication of your bodies, presenting all your members and faculties as a living sacrifice, holy, devoted, consecrated, and well-pleasing to God which is your reasonable, rational, intelligent service and spiritual worship. And verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, this age, fashioned after and adapted to its external, superficial customs, but be transformed, changed, by the entire renewal of your mind, by its new ideas and its new attitude, so that you may prove for yourselves what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, even the thing which is good and acceptable and perfect in his sight for you. So that's Romans 12, 1 and 2. We're familiar with those verses and in view of all the mercies of God. So I hope that from today you start to understand some of the mercies of God, that He's some of the things he's done for us, some of the ways he's demonstrated his love for us. The word translated reasonable is the same word used in 1 Peter 2 too, where it's translated of the word. So I desire the pure milk of the word. And I've got a quote from David Guzik on this. He says, Reasonable service. The ancient Greek word for reasonable, logikos, can be translated of the word, as it is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Reasonable service is a life of worship according to God's word. Interesting, eh? The sacrifice of an animal was a reasonable service, but only for the one bringing the sacrifice, not for the sacrifice itself. 
Under the new covenant, we have far greater mercies, so it is reasonable to offer a far greater sacrifice. So, the point here is that, as the scripture says, in view of God's mercy, present yourself as a living sacrifice. The more we understand about what God has done for us, how much he loves us, then the more we'll be willing to sacrifice for him. So, what are some of the mercies that we should be thankful for? Well, in the book of Romans, we have justification from the guilt and penalty of sin. We have adoption in Jesus and identification with Christ. We are placed under grace, not law. We are given the Holy Spirit to live within us. We have the promise of help in all affliction. We have the assurance of a standing in God's election. We have confidence of coming glory. We have confidence of no separation from the love of God. And we have confidence in God's continued faithfulness. So that's all the wonderful things that God has done. Well, it's just a partial list. There's probably a lot more. And then First Peter chapter 2, verse 2. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So I want to suggest to you today that the most important sacrifice that we can make, or that we need to make, is to make the effort to put other things aside so we can have more time to meet with God and allow him to speak to us through his word. Because only then will we grow and change. You know, in Romans 7, it talks about this battle. There's a battle in my mind. There's this flesh, this sinful nature, and there's a new nature. I'm learning, I was learning, that God had given up so much for me to be in relationship with him. And then surely, I should be willing to give up things for him. I should be willing to give up the sin that seeks to ensnare me. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. I should be willing to give up my time my entertainment, my movies, my games, my TV, my sleep, in order to spend time with him, to be in a love relationship with him. So remember what it said in Psalm 22? I will... declare your name to my brethren, my brothers. Jesus is seeking a relationship with us. Now... Do I always win the battle? No. Sometimes I fail because I forget what Christ has done for me and therefore how much he loves me. I need the pure milk with the word. I need to keep coming back to the basics. Okay, We do need to go on from the milk, that's true, but we always need to remember the basics. We need to remember how much God loves us because that's what motivates us to keep on going. Romans 5.8, for God demonstrates his love for us and that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So I need to remind myself of God's love if I am to be motivated by God's love. Does that make sense? So that's my responsibility. It's your responsibility for yourself as well. And this is where the heart of the battle is. Why? Because if I don't feed on the word of God, I won't grow. We won't grow or remain in our love for the Lord, Jude 20.21. We won't grow in our faith, because faith comes by hearing the word of God, Romans 10, 17. We won't grow to overcome sin, and so we'll remain carnal and immature in our thoughts and actions and words, 1 Corinthians 3, 1-3. We won't grow to love others enough to share our faith, Ephesians 6, 9-20. And we won't grow in our understanding of the word, and we'll continue to be waylaid and deceived by false doctrines, Ephesians 4, 14. So, we need to make those sacrifices to be in the Word so we can grow. Now, I'm going to finish with Jude 20 to 21, and it gives us four key things that we need to do to maintain and strengthen our relationship with God, things that are our responsibility. Okay, It says in Jude 20 to 21, it says, But you, beloved, but you, yeah? Not God, but, but you, build yourselves up, founded on your most holy faith, Make progress, rise like an edifice higher and higher, praying in the Holy Spirit, guard and keep yourselves in the love of God, expect and patiently wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, which will bring you 
unto life eternal. So the four things are, the first one in verse 20, build yourselves up founded on your most holy faith. It's like the foundation of our lives. The only way we can grow is by increasing our faith. And how do we increase our faith? Is by hearing the word of God. We need to be in the word of God. I need to make this choice to read, study and memorize the word of God. God won't force me to do that. This is all about relationship. My relationship with God will be limited by how much I partake of God's word. Another way of saying it is that my love for God is proportional to the time I spend communicating with him as I read his word. Now the second thing that Jude tells us that we should be doing is praying in the Holy Spirit. So Romans 8 tells us that the Holy Spirit helps us as we pray. We need to ask God to guide us as we pray so our prayers will be effective. And the best way to pray effectively is to pray according to Scripture. Remind God of his promises, and God loves it when we do this. And this transforms our Bible study from an intellectual knowledge endeavor to a relationship endeavor. We're doing this because we're praying in the Spirit, because we want to know more about Jesus, because we want to love him more, not just to know more. The next thing it says is to guard and keep. Okay, And the word translated here, guard or keep, it means to keep watch over, to guard, preserve, reserve, fulfill, pay attention to, hold or maintain, and to protect. So think about that, to protect. Protect your relationship with God. Jude is telling us to protect our relationship with God. It's so important. We need to protect our relationship with God. Movies, TV, the internet, family, work, sports, games, laziness, and sin will always try to steal our affections. They will try to be the number one in our lives. They want to become idols that we've placed before God. Now, what is an idol? It's anything that's more important than God. Anything that takes precedence over God. And we can easily recognize an idol because they will cause us to have less time or less desire to read God's beautiful love letter to us. So if there's anything in your life that's stopping you from spending time in the Word of God, Get rid of it. It's an idol. And the last thing that Jude tells us to do is expect and patiently wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are waiting for the day when we will see Jesus face to face, to know him as he knows us. And as 1 John 3, 2-3 says, He who has his hope purifies himself. We're looking for his return. We're looking to see him face to face, to know him as we are known. Paul says he was yearning for the time when he would see Jesus face to face. We're looking for that full spiritual intimacy of which we only have a dim reflection of now. So, conclusion. The one motive for making changes in our lives is our love for God based on our appreciation and thankfulness of what he has already done for us us so we know that the price is paid in full true it's finished we know that jesus went through incredible suffering he went through separation from the father so i don't have to jesus drank that cup of wrath of judgment to the very bottom he drank the last drop there is no more wrath in that cup it's all been absorbed by christ And because of that, as a result, there should be nothing I wouldn't be willing to give up for the sake of my relationship with Christ. This is my reasonable, rational, logical, of-the-word service. So let's take communion now. Father, thank you for what you've done for us. Lord, it's just, it takes time to sit and meditate and and try and comprehend what you've done for us. Lord, this is deep. Help us to make the time to consider and to meditate on 
what you have done for us, how much you love us, what the ramifications are that we are completely forgiven. And so there will be no more condemnation. There's no waiting for us to get to heaven where you go straight there. You always will hear us. And we have all these other benefits too. So help us, Father, to remember what you have done for us. As Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me until I come. So we just thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.